This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alrighty, welcome back, everybody. I know what you're all thinking. You just have not heard enough about recessions in this past week, right? Of course, everybody... I mean, just the past week, everybody's made a video on recessions. So I actually, I had a whole spiel that I was going to do on recessions, go through a lot of the different data and that type of thing. And then over the, the week, there's just so many videos put out, so much content from every other financial YouTuber that I was planning on going, you know, I'm just going to focus on a different topic this weekend. But then I got so many emails, so many messages on Instagram, comments on Twitter, that type of thing, asking about recessions, about what people wanting to know what they should do with their portfolio. They're hearing all this terrible news that's right around the corner. Uh, I'll go through just a, a couple examples of what I'm talking about here. This is just emails alone. Daniel says, now or wait until a recession hits? Has a big long email asking about that. Dominic says, also, my second question is, would it be smart to pull that money out and wait for the next recession that's around the corner? Then once the recession hits, put that money back into the market. Nicholas says, there are indicators that we're heading into a correction slash recession. And if I would wait till the stocks go down, the value I'd get from that money would be way higher than buying in right now. Jason says, my question is, what action should I take when the market drops even harder than before when the next recession hits the economy? Logan says, also, do you think that that dip is enough to keep the bull market going? Or do you think that we are in for a drop in the market for a bit? And this goes on and on. I really, I probably got about two dozen emails uh, and then a dozen messages on Instagram and Twitter and so on. So I will touch on all of this. I'm going to go over a recession in this video and just give you some uh, really high level takeaways, things that you can do in your portfolio to be a little bit more prepared. But I also have a lot of different questions that you guys have asked that I'm going to go through in this video, as well as a, a couple news items at the end. So the first thing I wanted to do was just give you an update on my portfolio here. So the first thing you might notice is right up here in the top right corner, this gold plus. I signed up for M1 plus, which if you don't know, M1 is coming out with a new product. They're, they're becoming a bank now. Pretty much what they want to do is they want to have it so that they can be the one solution for all of your finances. And so they're coming out with a, a checking account that would work pretty identical to a bank. You get a debit card, you'd have a checking account, you'd be able to manage all your finances there. They're calling that M1 Spend. And I signed up for the early access as well as Plus, which is uh, additional benefits on top of it that you pay yearly for. And they released some details about it on their website. It, it tells the benefits of it as well as the price. I've actually, of course, I haven't really talked about this before because I've delayed giving my opinions on it. And I'm going to wait until I actually am able to use it and gain some experience with it. I'll give you my initial impressions when I'm able to use it, a, a little review there. And then as I'm able to use it for like a month or two, I'll give you my impressions once I have more experience with it. So that's what that is. I'll let you guys know as soon as I'm able to use M1 Plus and let you guys know what I think of it. But uh, aside from that, let's jump into the portfolio and see how it's performing. Now, I posted this on Twitter. This is pretty cool. So my personal performance since May 16th, which is 90 day period, I was up 2.29%. The S&P 500 was down about 1% at that time. I believe it's recovered some since then, just in the past day or two. Anyway, if you follow me on Twitter, I do post like little updates about my portfolio interday if I go down a lot and that type of thing. But if I go to the 90 day here, check this out. This is one quarter, which is three months, 90 days. This is since May 16th, up $973 
Of that, about half the gains, maybe 40%, are earned dividends. So $410.98 in the past 90 days. That's pretty remarkable, I think. If I go to just the past week here, we're down $67 this past week. The S&P 500 is down about half a percent. But if I go over here, earned dividends, $76.68. That's how much I've earned in just the past five days. Uh, if I can get to the point where I'm earning that every single week consistently, that's a pretty awesome thing. Now, if we go over and actually compare my overall performance to the S&P 500, you might notice in the past, I, I mean, the past month or two, my portfolio has been sitting around the same amount of gains. It's been, it's been bouncing back between 3,500 to 4,500 and anywhere between there, right around $4,500 is about where I've been. I've never even cracked through $5,000. So at the same time, though, I'm earning all of these dividends and they are purchasing shares. So I am compounding the shares and I'm increasing my income. Even though my gains are staying the same, these shares that are being repurchased are upping my income. So I like that that's going on. Let's go ahead and see how this actually compares with the market. If I go over here, we have the S&P 500 for the past five years. You can see some of the best years to invest. If you would have invested in 2016, you would have made a, a great like 9, 10% in 2016. If you invested in 2017, this was the best year. There's almost no volatility. The market just went up and up and up. Uh, about 20% in 2017. And then right when I started investing, December of 2018 is when I started my portfolio. In fact, I believe it was about December 18th, somewhere around there. The market's up 7.6% in a year and a half, more than a year and a half, almost two years now. That's not quite as good. In fact, if you waited right to the top here and invested, you're only up a half a percent. Since December 2018, the market has also been very volatile. There's some highs like September of 2018 here, and then the market dropped down early 2019, about 17, 18% from the highest to the lowest. So there's been some real volatility. There hasn't been a ton of growth since 2018 to current, just 7 or 8%. But my portfolio has kept right up with that. Now, the cool thing about this is I don't have to really worry with a lot of people that are invested in just index fund and they almost have no cash flow. A market being flat like this can feel like you're wasting a lot of time because you're just you're going flat after month after month after month, going up and down. And unless you're having years like 2017, you're not going to see a lot of a lot of benefit with your portfolio. The thing I like is I can go here. I can say in the past year, how much have I made? Almost $3,000, a 10% return since August 16th, 2018. And I can look at this, over 1,100 dividends earned in just the past year. So I'm getting income no matter what the market does. It could stay completely flat. The S&P 500 could be flat from now to the end of time, and I would still earn this 4 to 5% dividends year over year that would get compounded over time. So I like this portfolio because it allows me to stay patient in a variety of markets. But... Uh, as far as performance goes, it is keeping up just fine with S&P 500. Right now, I think I'm beating it by a little bit, but time will tell how it does in the long run. All right, so let me move on to this and address the the recession that we've all heard about that's right around the corner. You know, it's scheduled for 2020. It's going to make its appearance, the impending recession. So let me go ahead and talk about this, and I'll highlight one of the emails I got. I could pick from, I could seriously pick from 20 different ones, but I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll read Jason's here. It says, hey, Joseph, I started investing about a month ago, and I was lucky enough to buy about $8,000 worth of stock at a discount because of the market response to the Huawei ban. Since the market has recovered, I've been able to make immediate gains from my investment. My question is, what action should I take when the market drops even harder than before when the recession hits the economy? 
Would it be wiser to sell 80% of my portfolio and wait to reinvest when the stocks all fall down to a lower price? Or would it be better to weather the storm until the market recovers from a drop? Thank you for your time. I also really enjoy watching your videos. Best, Jason. So let me just jump to that that main question. Would it be wiser to sell 80% of my portfolio and wait to reinvest it when the stocks all fall down to a lower price? So this, this question is asked one way or another. I think it's a, a fair question. People have been told so many times the past couple months that they're going to hit a recession. Then why not just wait until you hit it? Now, generally speaking, let me just say, I do not think it's good investing strategy to stay out of the game and have all your money sitting in a bank account waiting for a recession to hit. There's a lot of factors that make this really difficult. One is that you'd really have no idea when a recession is going to hit. Nobody does. A lot of people have been predicting a recession since 2013, employing that strategy of keeping a, a huge amount of their money out of the market. And they've missed out on over, I think, 100% return since then. So there is a huge cost to waiting, especially if you're in a portfolio that's always that's always has a yield, always putting out cash. All that time that you could be earning that yield from those dividends coming in and reinvesting, now you have your money sitting on the side, not working for you. So timing is one thing. I don't think it's good to try to time the market in this way. Uh, a lot of times it might cost you more money than what you would save by waiting until the recession hits. Another issue with this strategy, when the recession does hit, it's equally as difficult to determine where's the bottom of the recession. Even people that are great at investing. During 2009, Warren Buffett did not time the purchase of stocks during the recession perfectly. And he purchased them a little bit early and they still continued to fall after he had purchased them. So thinking that you're going to be able to say, oh, now is the bottom of the recession. I'm going to buy in now. That's very difficult to say that it's not going to continue to fall or that you you missed it and it's already on its way back up. So there's two reasons there. One is that you don't know when a recession is actually going to hit. These are all predictions. They're based off of things that uh, they have big time spans. It could be a year. It could be two years. We don't really know when it's going to happen. And two, even when it does hit, it's very difficult to time purchasing at the bottom of a recession to maximize your returns. Great investors have a very difficult time doing that. Now, on the other end of things, we have another extreme, which is to not do anything with your portfolio, not implement any strategy to prepare for a recession. Just completely ignore all market conditions, ignore everything. And I don't really agree with that strategy as well, that strategy or lack thereof as well. I think that there's a happy medium between being so conservative that you have your money sitting on cash waiting for the bottom of a recession and being so oblivious to market conditions that you have yourself fully exposed to the the biggest growth companies and the the high-flying companies when you're in a market that shows signs of recession. I think that there's a, a happy middle ground there. What I've done with my portfolio is tried to calibrate it to the current risk in the market, meaning things are generally expensive now. We are in an expansion and there are signs of recession, the yield curve inverted. And so what have I done? I've made it a little bit more conservative. I haven't gone completely to cash. I'm not waiting for the bottom of the, the recession, but I've dialed things a little bit more conservatively. I've added in 20% bonds, most of the, the large sectors that are just dividend paying sectors, and all the companies that I hold are dividend paying companies. That's a pretty conservative portfolio that I think matches the current risk in the market. Now, a lot of this goes to your personal preferences. If you're really risk adverse, if you couldn't stand, if you couldn't stomach it to see your portfolio drop 20%, you need to make your portfolio more defensive. You need to up the amount of fixed income and and lower the amount of volatile holdings. Uh, and, and likewise, if you have a higher risk tolerance, you might be able to go the other direction. I want to talk about another strategy that I can employ as well. And that is this rebalance button here. 
What would likely happen if we were to hit a recession and I was to look at all my sectors, my bonds would hold their value the most out of every other sector here. All of the equities would drop down. Let's say every other equity drops 20%. What that would do is it would make my bonds way overweight. The bond segment, which is right here, this will jut out and it'll become overweight. What I could do is in a recession, I could hit this rebalance button here. What this would do, if I execute this, it'll make my portfolio in balance. So the bonds that didn't lose their value that much, they would then be sold and they would purchase shares in all the companies that did lose their value. And they would, uh, they would purchase the companies that lost their value the most. So before doing that, I would want to make sure that the companies that lost their value the most, that they're ones that I still want to hold, I don't want to sell them. But then I could hit this rebalance button. It would put my portfolio in balance by selling out of bonds and buying all the equities. And that's a way I could continually do that. As we keep going down 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, I could keep hitting rebalance and shifting money out of bonds into equities. So that is a strategy that you can easily do. You don't have to time the market because even if it goes down 5% and you just hit it rebalance, you'll buy the equities 5% lower and it's likely the bonds won't go down as much. Bonds are a little bit more resistant, so they're, they're not going to go down quite as much. But that is a strategy that I plan on implementing during recession is I have the 20% bonds. A lot of these are treasuries and they're corporate grade bonds that they earn some income, but they're mostly there to keep their value during a recession. If we enter into a bear market and the rest of my portfolio drops significantly, I will hit the rebalance button and I'll shift money out of bonds into the rest of these equities. So that is a strategy that I plan on doing. It's one that I think is easy to do. It doesn't take any kind of market timing or anything like that. You just simply hit rebalance on your portfolio. Now I will talk about what I think are the two most important indicators of a recession. We just passed one of them. And that is, I'm sure everyone here has heard, the yield curve inversion. So typically with a bond, the longer the duration of the maturity, the higher it yields. Because when you're you're holding somebody's debt for longer amounts of time, usually that means there's more risk, there's more opportunity cost, uh, th there's just a little bit more expense to it. And so you, you demand a higher yield on it. Now, the 10-year and the two-year inverted, meaning that the two-year has a higher yield than the 10-year. That shows that the investors are not confident in the current economy. So they're, they're kind of locking in the long-term economy, right? They want that 10-year because they don't know what's going to be happening now between now and the next 10 years. So this is behavior that shows that investors are negative on the economic outlook of the short term. Now, if I go in and I actually zoom in on this graph here, you can see these gray marks here. These mark recessions. And you can see that every time that the 2 and 10-year inverted, sometime after on the way up, we entered a recession. We go way back here, it inverted again. And then on the way up, we entered another recession. That was in 2000. And then in 2006, 2007, we had that yield curve invert again. Then on its way back up, we entered another recession. And then here we are just a couple days ago, the yield curve inverted for the two year and 10 year. So that's a pretty big landmark. There's typically recessions somewhere between like 12 to 18 months, right? They give a time range of on average when it happens. So this can give you an idea. Does this mean there has to be recession afterwards? No, this doesn't cause a recession by any means. It's an indicator. It shows pessimism among investors, but there's nothing that this does to cause a recession per se. The other indicator of a recession that I think is actually more important than the yield curve inversion, and the one that I'm going to be watching now, is the unemployment rate. Here we are looking at a graph going back to the 1950s to present, and this line right here that's going up and down is the unemployment rate. 
Meaning the higher this is, the more people are out of work. The higher unemployment is. The lower it is, is a good thing. That means the more people are working, the unemployment rate is lower. Now, if we go over from the beginning, you notice a, it's not even a trend because a trend might have some times where it doesn't happen. This literally happens every single time. So it's a uh, direct correlation since the 1950s to present where the unemployment rate, whenever it hits a bottom and it starts to go back up, you enter in these gray vertical bars here. Again, our recessions, you enter into a recession. That has happened every single time. I've talked about this before. The unemployment rate hits a bottom, meaning it's down the lowest point, and then it starts to trend back upwards. Once people start going out of work, that's when we enter into a recession. And if we zoom in, if I go and I toggle this to zoom into a little bit more close now, you can see since the year 2000, we hit a bottom, started to go back up, we entered a recession. And then again, we hit a bottom here. Around 2007, the unemployment rate hit a bottom, started to trend back upwards. Quickly, we entered into a recession. And then look at this. We are all the way down to the latest data from July 2019. We have an unemployment rate of 3.7%. And that's really low. And if you just look at the pattern here, uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that it seems like it's it's following these same basic patterns. Once this starts to trend back upwards, I think a recession will soon follow. Now, of course, when you're looking at the downslope, it's hard to tell when it's going to start trending back upwards because it could have we could have had the bottom been December 2013. Could have started trending back upwards at 6% here or uh, June 2015, right? So we don't know. This could keep going down a little bit. We could go down into the twos. We've been there before. Um, but I think we're pretty close to where unemployment is as low as we're really going to get, in my opinion. So again, this is all just looking at some patterns. If I zoom back out again to the 1950s, this has happened every single time. Unemployment gets to a low and then it starts to go back upwards and that's when we hit a recession. Uh, having said all of this, does it really change my decisions right now? No, a recession is kind of baked into the cake for my portfolio, meaning it could start happening tomorrow and I, I would be like, okay, my portfolio is going to stay the same as it is right now. So I think that it's a mistake to try to time this. And I think that you should just have your portfolio prepared that if we were going to enter a recession tomorrow, you'd be okay with your portfolio as it currently stands. That's how I would take this. But you can look at this. The The trends are something that you can look at. I'm going to be monitoring, especially employment rates over the coming months and seeing if it starts to trend back upwards. That's what I'll be looking at the most. One last note on recessions before I move on to the news is I think, you know, I, I was pretty young uh, in 2007, 2008, leading up to the recession then. But I don't remember people talking about a recession like it was imminent before it happened. That's just an observation. I don't really know what it means, but I feel like we're much more aware. Everybody's predicting one to have happen. And it seems like uh, if everybody's predicting a recession to happen, it's difficult for me to believe it's going to happen right when everybody predicts it. I just usually, usually at least what I have had described to me is that recessions happen when everybody has optimism, when everybody's saying, buy, 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 you know, the markets get in while you can, it's going to keep going up. That's the type of attitude that the general public had right now. It seems like people are generally pessimistic, which makes me almost feel the inverse. Like, uh, are we really going to have a recession exactly when everybody and their dog is predicting one, right? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I can't say for sure either way, but that's just another observation, something else to think about. We seem a lot more aware about a recession upcoming than we have previously. All right, let's move on from this and talk about some news. I want to talk about this guy. His name is Harry Markopoulos. This is in, uh, I think, March of 2009. 
And this is the guy that uncovered the Bernie Madoff scheme before it happened. Unfortunately, then the SEC really didn't take him seriously. They didn't really investigate the claims that he was making, but he sent in multiple claims to the SEC alleging fraud with Bernie Madoff. And then, of course, that unraveled to be the biggest Ponzi scheme ever perpetrated. Here's a little clip of him telling about how he came to the conclusion that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. So, I mean, you're like a math guy, right? I've taken all the calculus courses from integral calculus to differential calculus, as well as linear algebra and statistics, both normal and non-normal. How long did it take you to figure out that there was something wrong? It took me five minutes to know that it was a fraud. It took me another almost four hours of mathematical modeling to prove that it was a fraud. What were the things that caught your attention? It was the performance line. As we know, that markets go up and down. And his only went up. He had very few down months. Only 4% of the months were down months. And that would be equivalent to a baseball player in, in the major leagues batting 960 for a year. Clearly impossible. You would suspect cheating immediately. Maybe he was just good. No one's that good. So obviously he was uh, spot on with Bernie Madoff. He was completely vindicated with everything that he said. And this almost turned him into like a, uh, a folklore hero around, around the financial analyst industry, where he gained a lot of notoriety and respect because of his, his revealing of this massive fraud, right? Well, this same guy is now alleging that GE, General Electric, is perpetrating a $38 billion accounting fraud. And here he is on CNBC stating some of his case. Most other people on Wall Street have missed. I mean, everybody has been looking at the stock and the numbers. The numbers are missing. There's, they report top-line revenues, bottom-line profits, and nothing in between, like expenses, research and development, selling general administration costs, research and development. It's all missing, including cash flows. They don't provide working capital. It's the only company in that industry that doesn't provide working capital. In fact, GE's working capital is minus 20.3 billion. Their current ratio is 0.67. If you word search current ratio in their annual report, it doesn't appear. Name a company that does that, that's accounting 101. There he says that their numbers are missing, that they're not reporting things. Harry's going to say how if they had cash, there's previous times where they, they would have used it if they had it. Are you saying that those numbers are wrong? Or are you saying that those numbers are fudged? What are, what are the allegations here? Because they're, they don't agree with your assessment here, if, obviously. If GE had cash in January 2018, when they took a $15 billion reserve hit with the Kansas Insurance Department, they would have been able to fund all $15 billion at once. Instead, they had to request a special forbearance from Kansas to pay that money over seven years. So they couldn't afford $15 billion. I don't think they can afford $18.5 billion. If they had cash, they would have used it. I think they're cash poor. Now, of course, GE has uh, responded to this themselves, as well as a lot of analysts. Here's one analyst on CNBC weighing in on what they think of his claims. No, 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 no. I think this is way too hyperbolic. Uh, number one, you know, he used the word fraud. Uh, he used the word bankruptcy. He compared it to you know, Enron. I think that's way over the top. And then so you say to yourself, why is this respected research analyst who brought to the fore the Madoff crimes uh, doing this? And, and frankly, he discloses why he's doing it. <laughs> He's, short. He's, he gave this report to a short seller right. who doesn't name, who then profited. I mean, somebody, you know, the stock was down, you know, $9 billion yesterday. If he covered the short, that's more money than Bill Ackman made when he did his little gambit with Allergan and Valiant. So, uh, you know, this is, I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly, I uh, think this should be something that should be investigated by the SEC. Or litigated. 
Yeah, so he's suggesting that not only is he wrong and that he's being uh, hyperbolic with his statements, but that he should be under investigation. Because it is true that Harry, uh, the person alleging all these financial crimes that GE is doing, is that he's working with a short seller. If GE's stock goes down, he gets some of the profits that that short seller will generate. So he's working with a hedge fund that's short on GE stock. And of course, GE responded with their own defense, disputing all the claims and accusations that uh, Harry made. And they said in one part of this, I'll highlight... Then the allegations from Mr. Markopoulos amounted to market manipulation, adding his report contained false statements and was motivated by personal profit. So there you kind of see both sides of it. Of course, she is disputing the claims. Harry is he's launching all these accusations. If you want to listen to him further, there's lots of clips of him going into it in detail on what he thinks GE did. My opinion on this, I don't think that this is going to go the way that Harry wants it to. I saw when Bill Ackman tried to take down Herbalife, and even though he had some good information about how he, you know, he thinks it's a pyramid scheme and it's a bad business, which I agreed with almost everything he said, the stock kept going up. Uh, a lot of times things don't go the way that they are supposed to with stocks. You have to be prepared for that. On top of that, I'm not a big fan of GE to begin with. I wouldn't touch this stock with a 10-foot pole. Uh, I've told people to sell it after they did their first dividend cut, which would have saved a ton of money for a, a lot of people. But I don't like conglomerates like GE that much in general, these companies that you can't really describe even what they do because they do so many different things. So I stay away from these companies to begin with. But anyway, this just adds a little bit more drama to it. I don't think it will really affect GE in the long run. I, I don't know if his claims are that accurate. I think they might be. I, I kind of agree with the analyst saying they're a little bit hyperbolic. All right, so let's get to some questions and comments. Uh, be sure to follow me on Instagram. You can ask any questions there. Just direct message me. As well as Twitter, you can uh, direct message me there, or you can email in josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. I'll go to the first one here. This actually was a comment left on a previous video. I've actually talked to this person and somewhat resolved this, but I wanted to highlight this because I think it's applicable to other people. The name is Lord Guns, and I won't censor the name. I don't think his name is really Lord Guns, so I won't censor it. If your name really is Lord Guns, that is a pretty awesome name, but I'll go ahead and assume that's just a account name. But Lord Gunn says, I use your same portfolio and only have $300 in it, but I've been losing money every single day. Please help. Today alone, I've lost $4. All my pies are always in the red. Why is this? Any tips? I'm new to investing and it's depressing to have to always be losing money. Thank you. So of course, I replied to him and asked him when he started investing in the portfolio. He started investing. Let me go to a graph here. He started investing right here. Meaning, if I trace this and look at where we are right now, the entire stock market for the S&P 500, which is representative of you know mostly the United States stock market, is down 2.2%. There's not much uh, magical about my portfolio that's going to go up when the rest of the entire market goes down. A lot of what people buy into are ETFs, and so when they sell them, the entire market goes down with them. So uh, you just got to know when you're starting to investing, this is long-term stuff. You have to have a mentality that I'm buying these holdings knowing that I'm going to hold them for at least five years. If your plans to hold them for a year, don't be buying stocks. This is stuff that you need to hold them for at least a few years to have any margin of safety with them. The longer you hold them, the safer you are. Um, and I thought that this was relevant. I wanted to play one clip here from one of my favorite investors. I know you guys, I show him all the time, but he has some good advice on this particular subject here. This is, of course, Peter Lynch. What you learn from history is the market goes down. It goes down a lot. The math is simple. There's been 93 years a century. This is easy to do. The market's had 50 declines of 10% or more. 
So 50 declines in 93 years. About once every two years, the market falls 10%. 50 declines in 93 years. About once every two years, the market falls 10%. Of those 50 declines, 15 have been 25% or more. That's known as a bear market. We've had 15 declines in 93 years. So every six years, the market's going to have a 25% decline. That's all you need to know. You need to know the market's going to go down sometime. If you're not ready for that, you shouldn't own stocks. And it's good when it happens. If you like a stock at 14 and it goes to 6, that's great. You understand the company, you look at the balance sheet, and they're doing fine. And you're hoping to get to 22 with it. 14 to 22 is terrific. 6 to 22 is exceptional. So you take advantage of these declines. They're going to happen. No one knows when they're going to happen. It would be very, people tell you about it after the fact that they predicted it, but they predicted it 53 times. And, uh, so lower guns, this is the mentality that I'm talking about that we have to have here. The market's going to go down sometimes. I like how just matter of fact he is just every six years, the market's going to drop 25% or more, right? We're in a, a like 10, 11 year bull market. Now it's going to drop at some point. So you have to have that expectation going in. You can't panic when we get to that point. Otherwise you shouldn't own stocks at all. All right, the next comment was Eric. He says, honestly, most people I know will never make more than 20,000. Telling people if they make 35,000 a year, it's not enough is, is downright rude. I'm here trying to show people that there's a way out of poverty. You tell them if they only make 35K to go find a 50K job. Okay, so I think uh, I had actually, I got this comment and I was surprised. It was on one of my older videos that I, I talk about generating wealth, right? And at the very beginning of it, I make the point that in order to invest in stocks, you have to be making some money. And if you're only making 30000 a year and you have a family to support, that's very difficult to support a family and invest a good amount of money and have a good quality of life at the same time. It's just difficult to do. It's not impossible. So I said that instead of just focusing on investing, you should also try to focus on increasing your income, looking for opportunities to, to, to learn new valuable skills and trades and things to get your income up from 35,000 or 30,000 or whatever it was up to around 50,000, which is the median household income. And by the way, Eric, saying that people that you know will never make more than 20,000, I think is an extremely pessimistic view. Just to put that in perspective for you, $20,000 a year is about making $10 an hour. If you're working full-time making $10 an hour, you're making about $20,000 a year. So you're saying that most people you know will never make more than $10 an hour in their entire lifetime. Uh, now, I understand that we're all in different situations. We all get dealt a different hand, right, that we have to work with. Uh, I'm in a situation where I make a good income, but I also am surrounded by really good influences. I grew up with a good family um, that was financially focused, and I've been able to do well. But that's it's easier to do that when you have lots of good influences around you, where you have lots of people that can help network and create situations where you have opportunities to learn from, from people that are successful. So I'm aware that I'm in that situation, and I'm aware that other people are in different situations where they're around uh, worse influences. They have less opportunity to, to learn valuable traits and that type of thing. And it's more of a struggle for them to become successful. But even so, having saying that, saying that you, you don't think they'll ever make more than $10 an hour, uh, I think is a really pessimistic view. Making $15 an hour is, is at $30,000, $33,000 a year, somewhere around there, right? Um, my suggestion, though, is practical. 
It's reality-based. I'm saying if you're only making poverty wages, which is around $20,000 a year for a family, right? Family household income, $20,000 a year is you're pretty impoverished at that point in the US. If that's what your wage is, your focus should be on increasing your wage. It should not really be on investing. You're not, you're just, there's just no wiggle room. You don't have enough money at that point to put in investments and grow a really big portfolio. So uh, my advice is practical, that people that are making extremely low incomes, their focus should be on upping their income because I think that they just have, it's just lower hanging fruit at that point. There's more opportunity. If they're able to up their skill set and get into different jobs or, you know, move different places and find different work, they're able to to increase their financial independence and their wealth a lot more drastically than taking $5,000 out of their $20,000 budget, a quarter of their income and investing that, right? So that's my suggestion. This wasn't to be rude or to downplay the struggles other people have that are in different situations and have a a harder uh, hand to deal with. Um, My suggestion is just practical reality based. If you're not making hardly any money, your focus should be on making more money. That's that's all I'm saying. All right. Roman says, hey, Joseph, thank you for your show on YouTube. I love it. It motivates me greatly. I'm 25 from France, started investing in dividends two years ago and have $100,000 on my portfolio. Um, Roman, I don't, you know, I don't know what you do, but good job there. Keep up whatever you're doing. 25. So he's about five years younger than me and has a hundred thousand dollars in a portfolio. That's what I'm saying, guys. It's all relative, right? I show my portfolio. Some people say it's a pipe dream. I could never imagine having that much money. I'm reading a message here from a kid that's five years younger than me and has a portfolio twice the size. It's all relative, but he says, here's my question. I heard that borrowing to invest in stocks was a bad idea. Can you explain why exactly? Why is it so recommended in real estate and not in the stock market? Thank you and have a great day. All right, Roman. So why leverage real estate and not stocks? Why is it recommended in real estate and not stocks? That's a good question. Um, I don't use leverage with my stocks. I don't think it's a good idea. I would never recommend it to anybody. I think it's a way to get yourself in a lot of trouble. That's my opinion on it. So um, a couple of reasons why. One of them is when you're leveraging when you're leveraging with real estate, it's really straightforward. You put down a large down payment that gives you a little bit of equity, that gives you some buffer room if the market goes up and down, typically like 20%, and that's your margin of safety. So the value could drop 20%. Now you still don't owe more than what you currently have. But uh, there's still some risk there with leverage. So you, let's not pretend that there's no risk with leverage in real estate. There's a lot of risk. It puts people out of business uh, if the market goes down or they run into problems, right? So there's risk with using leverage either way in real estate or the stock market. But why is it more risky in the stock market? I think because companies are already using leverage. Think about this. Pretty much every public company that you buy uses a lot of leverage in its business model. They all have long-term loans. They all have debt. And then you're using leverage to purchase a company that's using leverage to operate the company. So it's the same type of thing where you have these uh, derivatives, like with the bank that get them in trouble. Um, I believe it's the same type of thing. You're, you're using leverage to buy something that's already using leverage to operate its business. I think it compounds the risk. Uh, when you own equities, when you own stocks, I think you should buy them with your own money. In a general sense, I only like to be able to lose money that I actually have. I don't like using borrowed money when I don't have to. So no, I wouldn't recommend using leverage. Uh, I think the potential of the downside outweighs the benefit that you can get. I just don't think it's worth the benefit and the downside's pretty drastic. If it goes down and you lose somebody else's money, 
um, it can just take a long time to make up for it. So I definitely wouldn't use leverage in the stock market. And even with real estate, I mean, I'm more of a conservative person in general. I own about half my home's value. So I have about 50% equity in my house. And I did that intentionally. I put a lot of money down on my house just because I like having a low payment. I don't like having, I don't like feeling like I'm spread thin. Like I have these really high household payments that if my income ever dropped, that I'd be really stressed and feel house poor. I didn't want that feeling. I wanted to get the the monthly payment really low on it. I wanted to have a lot of equity. The market could drop a ton and I would still be able to sell my home and make money doing it. So I'm not a big fan of using leverage either way. I think that a a lot of the real estate people on YouTube and and different things, I think that they try to spread themselves very thin. And unless you really know what you're doing with real estate, that you should be careful with that. Generally speaking, God suggests putting 20% down on any place so that you avoid a lot of fees and you have equity in case you ever have to sell it. So that's just my take. You might be able to make more money the other way, but the risks go up drastically. Jave says, I have a TD Ameritrade account, and I called and asked him if I could build a portfolio with 10 stocks that I choose myself and only get charged one $7 buy fee a month for the $400 split evenly over those 10 stocks. Their answer was no. I would have to pay the $7 buy fee uh, 10 times, $70 every month. They did offer a portfolio that was managed by them that would not charge me as high of a fee, but then I don't get to choose those stocks. So how do you guys get around these high fees? If I contribute $400 a month to my portfolio, I don't want it to cost me $70 to do so. What are my options here? Thank you in advance. All right. So um, I think that there's two options that you can do. One of them, obviously, is I use a broker called M1 Finance that I show on the videos. This one does not charge you for trades. So you could put that $400 in, you could pick the 10 different stocks, and it would use its fractional shares, and it would split it evenly over those 10 different stocks and not charge you the fee to do so. Uh, They make money other ways. There's back-end services that they're able to monetize their broker and make money, but they don't do it with fees. So that's one option. Now, the other option, if you're Uh, more familiar with TD Ameritrade, more comfortable with that, and you don't want to switch brokers, um, what you could do on this broker is to minimize costs. This is what I would do. I would just, with that $400 at the end of every month, I would look over the 10 different stocks that you're talking about, and I would just look at the PE ratio of them, look what's going on with them, and try to find which one is presenting the best value that month. Every month, I would go through and just pick the stock that I think out of those 10, the stock that presents the best value, and I'd put all $400 into that. All right, this is the last question I do. It's from Tony. He says, hi, Joseph. I've been following you for five months. You have a really great channel, and I'm pretty sure that very soon the number of subscribers will outgrow your portfolio. I don't mean that there will be a recession and your portfolio will drop 50%. Well, uh, I hope not. I hope not. So, And I appreciate that. That's kind of you to say. But he says, what do you think about Donald Trump as president and as a businessman? Thanks. Um, This isn't... Uh, so this isn't a political channel. I'm not going to give my endorsement on different candidates or share my assessment as a, a political candidate as a whole. As far as where I fall in personally, I'm probably somewhere fiscally conservative, maybe socially moderate, but it really doesn't matter. And me sharing my endorsement of specific political candidates, or if I was going to go and give my assessment on different Democrat candidates running, I don't think it does a whole lot of good. In fact, I think it does the opposite. It causes people to get into all sorts of arguments. Politics really riles up people. Um, And so you get into a lot of petty arguments. Uh, I don't think that there's really much beneficial about it. If you think about this for a minute, politics, you can study all the issues. 
You can learn everything there is to learn about all the issues. Go through all the different social debates, all the different economic debates, and and talk about all the issues, and you become informed. But what do you do with that? You go online and argue with people. Go and you, you have all the best sources, all the best arguments. So you can go online and own other people and arguments. You know, what is the point of that? A lot of politics doesn't really, I don't think it gives you a return on your time that you're investing in it. Um, conversely, learning about finance, learning about wealth generation, learning about how to invest in your future, uh, understanding how money works, I think can drastically increase the quality of your lifestyle. Being able to control your money, being able to invest is something extremely beneficial. And politics, I think, is just the opposite. A lot of times it can actually reduce your quality of life the more you focus on it. A lot of politics is completely out of your control. So people focus on things that are totally out of their control. Like just in the U.S., if you vote in a general election, you're one of about 100 million people voting in an election. You don't have a lot of say over who becomes president or the policies that get implemented in Congress. You have even less say with that. So I think it's just not a really great thing to focus on. Um, I think that a lot of times it leads to more negatives and positives. It's not something I'm going to dive into in this channel at all. So uh, that's just how I feel about it. This channel is about making money. You can make money with Republicans in office. You can make money with Democrats in office. I'm going to keep giving my opinion on specific policies that happen to be financial related. So I gave my opinion on like Bernie Sanders' plan to uh, tax different trades to pay for different things. Um, I give my opinion on Elizabeth Warren wanting to break up big tech companies. And I give my opinion on Trump and the trade war and tariffs, right? So I comment on those type of things, but those are directly related to finance. I'm not giving my opinion as those candidates on a whole. And they have all sorts of other policies on all different social, social aspects as well that I'm not commenting on. So I'll continue to comment on financial related things uh, where politics does cross into the finance sphere of things. But I don't plan on this being a political channel. I don't think it does a lot of good for people. So uh, that's why I'm not going to be talking about it a whole lot. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and end it there. Be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, um, subscribe if you haven't subscribed, and I'll catch you guys next time.